Good morning. It is a joy to be back with you again after a few weeks away. We were a little over 10 days, 11 days in Phoenix, so got a little bit of sun and enjoyed some heat. We always tell you that when we come back. I'm not sure if we enjoyed it, but we we had a good vacation. Uh, I'm especially grateful to Bruce and to Brandon for their handling of God's word while I was gone. Um, I'm grateful for their hard work at the text as we continued in that series. Take your Bibles. We'll go again to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 16 this morning. 2 Samuel 16. As you know, we're headed out to Togo tomorrow, so please be in prayer for our team. Our prayer is that our God would be honored and glorified as we seek to serve him faithfully and humbly together as a church body, as representatives of this church family to our partners, the Kendalls. What kind of life do you expect God to give to you? That word expect in that sentence is important. What kind of life do you anticipate living? As I've meditated on this chapter, this text, and this question, I recognize that so often I expect God to provide for me a life of ease. And I'm unsettled, disquieted, when things aren't going according to my plans. When circumstances seem to be out of my control, or unforeseen things are happening, what seems like to me. I don't want hardship. I don't want opposition. And oftentimes we read into our circumstances something about God when things don't go as expected. And yet it's very difficult to find any single person in the record of Scripture who does not face hardship and adversity. All throughout church history, those that the Lord greatly uses face hardship and opposition. What kind of life do you expect God to provide for you? One of the blessings of living in this country is that we have great abundance. One of the blessings of living in this time is we have great security. One of the curses of that abundance is we don't recognize how much we need God. Very often our poor response to hardship reveals a deficient view of who God is. Our tendency is to let our circumstances influence our theology, be the glasses through which we see God, rather than letting our view of God help us interpret our circumstances. You see, as we've seen in David's life time and time again, hardship can actually be a blessing in God's hands if we will respond in humble dependence. You see, for in these moments, we are most convinced of our need, we are most convinced of his ability to meet that need. What we'll see in 2 Samuel 16 is that God sovereignly rules in our lives even when circumstances seem against us. We will see God ruling in every single detail of this text. Even when it seems like all the people that David is meeting stand against him. 
Now, last week in chapter 15, we saw David in one of the darkest moments of his life. He is running from his own home. He's running from the throne that God had promised to him that he had waited for. He's fleeing from civil war. He's protecting his people from violent conflict. He's fleeing from his very own son. This isn't even just David fleeing from his father-in-law, Saul, anymore. He's fleeing from his son. Here is God's king fleeing for his life. Now, certainly David had an understanding that these are part of the consequences of his sin. That God, through Nathan, had promised would come. Yet the question still remains. Are God's promises to be overthrown? Will the kingdom end this way? Is this how God would continue David's line? It can't be this way, can it? God had said Solomon would be the next king. This chapter continues what we read in chapter 15, verse 30. If you would, turn back there for just a moment before we look at the beginning of chapter 16. That verse reads, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and notice the tone that is being set for our text here this morning. He was weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Here's a grave betrayal to David. And David said, he prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Let's look now at chapter 16, and we'll read beginning in verse 1. This is the word of our God. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said today, the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Let's ask for God's help as we consider his word together this morning. Father, we need your grace. We need the work of your spirit, the author of these words, to open our eyes. That we may behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, win our hearts to you again. As we recognize your great worth, your supremacy, and your sovereignty over all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in the second half of chapter 15, we saw three friends come and express their support to David as he's fleeing Jerusalem. This week in chapter 16, we will see three enemies of David who add to his heartache and turmoil. First, we see hurt in time of desperate need. Now, in each section or interaction in chapter 16, there will be a seeming paradox of men conspiring to accomplish their own will, to do what they want to do, to take advantage of these circumstances. 
And yet God will superintend over each of these circumstances to accomplish his purposes in the life of his king. Now we first come upon Ziba in verses 1 through 4. And perhaps at first glance, this seems like kindness. How can we see this man as an enemy? Should we see him as an enemy? Well, let's consider what's revealed about this man in these first four verses. Ziba arrives on the scene with a significant and welcome supply of goods for David and his men and the company around him as they're fleeing Jerusalem. He comes with donkeys to ride. And here the original likely means more than just two. It could even be translated as a string of donkeys. Now notice that David is surprised by this generosity and he asks Ziba two questions. Maybe, maybe we should read these with a hint of suspicion. Maybe there's something David's asking in these questions. First, he asks, why have you brought these? Whose provisions really are these? Well, Ziba is now the servant of Mephibosheth. They're Mephibosheths. The idea is, why are you the one bringing these to me? Now, notice that in Ziba's reply, he does not directly answer why at this point. He simply instead recites how these provisions may be put to use. It's kind of like he's sidestepping the question right now at this point. Second, David asks directly, where is Mephibosheth? David had shown him unexpected mercy and kindness. A man who should have been considered his enemy, David considered a friend And a son. He seats him at the king's table. So why hasn't Mephibosheth come. Brought these provisions to him. And shown him loyal support. As David had shown to him. Now Ziba answers with a statement of truth. And then a lie. He first tells David that Mephibosheth is still back in Jerusalem. While the supporters of David are with him. And heading away from the city. His absence then is a glaring omission. What's really happening? Ziba tells him this. He says that Mephibosheth is seeking to take advantage of this situation. This power vacuum perhaps. And make a play for the throne. What we find later in chapter 19 is that Mephibosheth strongly refutes this as a lie. And if you read there carefully, the narrator affirms that Ziba is lying. Now, while it seems that David is somewhat suspicious of Ziba, he believes at least part of the story, and he quickly, hastily maybe even, gives away the property that had been Mephibosheth's. But think of it. Just just pause for a minute. Doesn't this story seem pretty far-fetched? How is this handicapped son of Jonathan going to overthrow Absalom and make a claim for the throne. That doesn't seem to make much sense. There's some confusion about what is really being said here, what's really going on. Ziba is pretending, though, to support David, though he's staying put in Jerusalem himself. Remember, back at the end of chapter 15, the men who are supporting David want to go with him David wins, though, he'll remember Ziba's kindness. That's how Ziba's thinking. If Absalom wins, then Ziba didn't truly support David and go with him. Either way, it's a win-win. 
One author notes it's a sign of just how distressed he was that David believed Ziba's slander without any further inquiry. And once David gives him something, only then does Ziba pay homage. He's revealing himself to be an opportunist. He's not truly seeking to demonstrate loyalty to David. He's taking advantage of the situation. General Washington's Continental Army suffered terribly through a horrible winter at Valley Forge, as we've often heard. Clothes were so threadbare and blankets were so rare that many soldiers were forced to stay awake through an entire evening in order to avoid freezing to death. One general saw several men whose legs had frozen black and had to be amputated. But why was there such suffering and so few provisions? These men had been promised more. It actually was not even that severe of a winter that winter. It was actually rather mild for Pennsylvania. The soldiers went hungry and received little supplies because nearby farmers preferred to take advantage of the opportunity. They preferred to sell to the British in Philadelphia for greater profits. The army was half naked because merchants in Boston refused to move government clothing off their shelves at anything less than profits ranging from 1,000 to 1,800% profit. The hardship of others was their opportunity for personal gain. Isn't that what's happening here in these first four verses? But what's the point? Why tell us this about Ziba? The point is to show us what David is facing, what he's suffering. He's facing great anguish as he runs for his life, as he seeks to spare his kingdom bloodshed. And here comes another wave of hardship, of anguish, another unexpected betrayal. Jonathan's son seems to have turned against him, even though David had been so kind. G. Campbell Morgan writes, Ziba was utterly despicable and the more so because at the moment the sorrow he brought to the heart of David was his feeling that his kindness toward Mephibosheth was now being despised. The narrator encourages the uncertainty and tension here to demonstrate the hardship and loss that David's facing. We see this in Psalm 3 where David writes, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Now, in spite of this new and painful betrayal, we should recognize this first paradox. God is providing for David even through the self-promotion of Ziba. Joseph's words to his brothers come to our mind. They should. Where he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is completely able to care for his children, even in the midst of the most troubling and difficult of circumstances. So where are you tempted to believe that God has abandoned you in your hardships? Where are you tempted to be frustrated with God's plan in your life right now? To say, this isn't good. This can't be what God wants from me. Where are you most prone to doubt his goodness, his control, or his love for you? Do you see here, even in this example, that God's commitment to his king, to his people, cannot be measured 
by circumstances, cannot be measured by sight. This is the first clue that in spite of what is at stake, in spite of what looks like failure of God's king, that he will succeed because God is working in the details. David not only faces hurt in time of desperate need, but secondly, he demonstrates humility in the face of an angry outburst. Let's continue our reading in verse 5 now. God's word says, When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. In verses 5 through 14, David now comes across another bitter opponent. He's from the family of Saul and in his bitterness and anger, he claims David is reaping what he has sown in wiping out Saul's line. Spurgeon comments, it's very hard to bear a cowardly attack like this one. One is very apt to reply and use hard words to one who takes advantage of your position and deals the coward's blow. Only the coward strikes a man when he is down. We're told that Shimei curses David continually as he travels down this road. The word curse is used eight times here in these few verses. Shimei is also throwing stones at him, acting as if he's to be stoned for his crimes. He claims that David's a murderer. And finally, God is judging him for the blood of Saul's family that he had spilled. He calls him a worthless man. This is the same label that the narrator uses of Eli's wicked sons and of Nabal, the arrogant fool. This accuser of God's king claims now that God is using Absalom as a tool of divine judgment. Now, just pause for a moment. We're hearing the details of the story, but but think with me. How do you think David heard that specific statement. Do you think that pricked his conscience? That ate at him a little bit? Part of that's true at least, isn't it? 
This foolish man is antagonizing a whole company of skilled soldiers who surround their king in protection. And in verse 9, Abishai, Joab's brother, makes the point that a man without a head doesn't continue to curse the king. So let me just take care of that for you. One commentator states, David could have taken this fellow's head off and that in a moment. And yet instead, he responds, let him alone, let him curse. And this makes a splendid example. If you can revenge yourself, don't. Don't. If one bitter word could end the argument, ask for grace to spare that bitter word. How we need to hear that application in many of our relationships. Verses 10 through 12 record David's striking response. David allows for the possibility that this man was placed here by God himself, a critic, a false accuser. Yet even this false accusation is under the sovereign hand of God, David says. Now, verse 12 presents a challenge for interpreters. You see there, probably in your ESV version, that there's a note saying there's an alternative translation. See, the Hebrew word can look like one of several words, and it's difficult to discern which one is correct. There are actually three different options that are somewhat similar, but maybe one that's more pointed. I've been convinced that one helps us understand David's response better. The phrase in question in verse 12 is, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Now that can be translated as the Lord looking on David's affliction, the wrong he was suffering. So the the actual Hebrew word could be referring to David's eyes and it's meaning the tears that are coming from this circumstance. Or thirdly, it could be referring to the wrong that David had done. David's iniquity. Now the first option seems to fit the occasion of the text very well. That's why the ESV translators chose that one. The second option is similar as the idea would be that God sees the emotional turmoil that this is presenting in David's life. But the final option seems to fit better with what is happening in the entire surrounding context of chapters 13 through 20. They're all controlled by Nathan's words in chapter 12. That David will suffer the consequences of his sin. That seems to be the controlling idea. This final option, that it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done by me and still be gracious. If David is saying that the Lord will look on the wrong that he has done and may still show him kindness, then his answer is all the more astounding and stronger and poignant. And in the end, it's all the more beautiful. Here then would be the secret to David's peace in the midst of this great turmoil. He has an unshakable confidence in God's overwhelming grace. A God who understands just how wicked David's heart is. Shimei doesn't have a clue. And yet, God continues to choose to show him favor. Isn't this what our God is really like? Shimei is right about David's guilt. 
he's wrong about the reason for it. And he has no idea how wrong he is to assume that God only desires to punish sinners. That's not his only demeanor. David states that God is free to act however he decides, yet he knows and is resting on God's character. He says God delights to show mercy to those who only deserve condemnation. Unbeliever, perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize that you deserve nothing from a holy God but condemnation. Will you hear that God longs to forgive those who will turn to him from their sins and trust in him? Believer, will you see the love of God to David, the sinner, the sinner who deserves even greater punishment than this? This is such a horrible circumstance that David is suffering as consequence to his sin. But think about it theologically. Does this remove what he has done? Can this atone for his sin? It comes nowhere close to atoning for what David did. Yet God delights to show mercy. Let God's grace here to David lead you to repentance. Let it remind you of what you have done as a sinner and turn to him again for grace. We often recognize that we deserve God's discipline for our repeated offenses, but see again that God stands more ready to forgive you than you are even to ask for that forgiveness. So will you let God's grace lead you to a place of humility and surrender as we see David model here? This, this is the key to peace in the midst of turmoil. To recognize that these circumstances aren't about what Absalom's doing or Shimei or Ziba. This is about my relationship with my God. Get your eyes off the circumstance and look at your God. What do you truly deserve? And what has he truly given you? God in Christ will forgive He'll restore you from any, any sin. David entrusts himself to God under the assault of these false accusations. I want you to see that David is not controlled by the evil being done to him. This man is absolutely wrong. He's wicked. You don't talk like this to the king. Notice at the beginning, verse 5, and then again in verse 6, we're seeing him called King David Again, this is the first time since the end of chapter 13. The narrator saying, no one should speak to the king this way. No one gets to claim the king should die for murder. That's God's judgment. Shimei is evil and wrong, but David's not controlled by that. He refuses to identify himself by his suffering. He's confident that God can bring good out of hardship and suffering. He refuses to fix his eyes on the temporal and looks at the true king, his true king. His hope is in God alone, not as a respite or removal of the hardships and suffering. His focus is God. David's prepared to let the cursing go unanswered, not as an omission of guilt, but as an act of faith. Doesn't this remind us of Christ? 
Peter writes, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Peter writes, he did this for you as an example. Think of all the ridicule and scorned heaped upon Jesus. All the accusations, every one of them false. A sham of a trial, and he bore it all without a word. David knew he deserved condemnation for the sins that he really had committed. David's greater son willingly chose to become sin and bear those accusations, though he knew no sin, so that you would be made righteous. David's response here foreshadows the response of Christ. The innocent one crushed, cursed for our sakes. Here's the paradox, the second paradox that we see in this text. Even in the midst of criticism, there is an opportunity for humility. For us to fix our eyes on our Lord. And isn't that the challenge? So often when criticism comes, we look at the person criticizing. We look at the opposition. We get angry. We get upset. We want to revenge. David trusts himself to the Lord. Our reputation is not our own. We need not defend ourselves from the lies of bitter men. We move forward with courage and confidence and reliance upon the God who holds our reputations. Suffering provides us with a unique opportunity to reflect Christ. In running from Absalom, David faces hurt in time of desperate need. Secondly, he demonstrates humility in the face of an angry outburst. And finally, we see hope now in the midst of seeming defeat. Look now at verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Hithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Hithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. First, we'll see Hushai's wise words. In verses 15 through 19, we see Hushai interacting with Absalom and God accomplishing his will just as David had prayed. We read Hushai's words. We should read them and recognize their double meaning. This is a shrewd, careful mole in Absalom's court now. He was placed there by David. 
David knows this man, his character that he's sending. And listen to what he says. He proclaims, long live the king. Who do you think Absalom thinks he meant? When Absalom asks him about his loyalty to David, Hushai replies, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. So who does Hushai refer to there? Who have the people of Israel and the Lord chosen? Is it Absalom? He doesn't say who he's referring to, but the narrator indicates that he means David by these words. He's being intentionally vague. He's letting Absalom fill in the blanks. And in his arrogance and pride, he thinks certainly, yeah, that's right. God has made me king. All Israel has stood behind me. Look at where I am right now. I'm in the palace. And yet he's referred to as David's friend, Hushai is, throughout 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Even in these final words that seem to be the strongest indication of his support for Absalom. He says, as I have served your father, so I will serve you. These should be read with the understanding that his loyalties lie with David. He's saying, in the same manner, to the same end, I have served your father. In that same way, I'll serve you. He's effectively playing the spy for David. We also see in these verses Absalom's wicked rebellion. Absalom follows Ahithophel's advice. He takes David's ten concubines up to the roof of the palace to demonstrate that he was now the king. Now these actions offend our modern sensibilities because this is just not done today by our world leaders, no matter how perverse we think them to be. But this was a clever and bold political move that was certain to succeed in establishing, in declaring to Israel that Absalom is Israel's new king. (coughs) This was the common practice among rulers of that time. To take the former king's harem is to be recognized as having taken his place. It's the final conquering move. He's brazenly putting the final stamp of victory on this coup. It appears as if he's won this overwhelming victory, even through a bloodless rebellion. Think about how this man is swelling. My father wasn't even brave enough to fight me. He's reached the throne. He's there. He got his goal. While our reaction to Absalom's actions here shouldn't be set by our cultural sensibilities, it should be shaped by God's word. This is despicable. It's disgusting, it's wicked, and is condemned repeatedly by God's word. It doesn't matter how common it was in culture. That's still a principle for us to continue to examine. It doesn't matter what culture thinks of our practices. We measure them by God's word. And consider how amazingly hypocritical this is. Here's a man who'd killed his brother Amnon for sexual sin. And now he's committing the same offense ten times over and in public. The point here is that all Israel knew about this. And yet we still cannot miss that this is the very same roof upon which David saw Bathsheba. And chose to pursue that relationship. This is fulfilling the very words of God when he said through Nathan you did this in private those who come after you will do this in public 
Even this sin is ultimately fulfilling God's word of judgment and discipline on David. Even this sin is proving God to be true. God is allowing Absalom to have his way, and yet in doing so, he is absolutely fulfilling God's word. It's important to remember at this point that Absalom is not just some rebel prince seeking to stir up a rebellion to serve his own ambitions. He is rebelling against God's chosen king. To rebel against God's choice of king was to rebel against God himself. Let's consider the third person in this section, Ahithophel's foolish counsel. Why would Ahithophel give such evil counsel? Surely he had to know God's laws. This was political pragmatism and evil in every way. This would work to establish Absalom as the king. It didn't matter what laws of God he broke. Perhaps some have suggested, as some have suggested, Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. That's possible. Maybe even likely. The text doesn't tell us for sure. And he's giving this advice out of bitterness and spite. Perhaps this is just a shrewd man who understands the effect Absalom's actions will accomplish. But here's a man whose counsel is trusted implicitly, the narrator tells us. He was once David's advisor and friend and counselor. So this seems to be the last straw. This piling up of negative developments, right? But God is answering David's prayer. When he prayed, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is foolishness in the extreme. The chapter ends, though, with this defeated note ringing in our ears. This last verse, talking about how Ahithophel's counsel was equal almost to God's word. It was so sure and good and helpful. But is this a note of defeat? I've wrestled this week why this final verse is here at this point in the narrative. And I've come to conclude that the author wants us to see that God is at work undermining this man's reputation and status in order to show us that no matter how much it seems like Absalom has won, has the upper hand, that he's ripping the throne from God's king, that instead God is doing his work exactly in his timing, exactly in his way. Even if David can't see it, Absalom can't see it, Ahithophel can't see it. Our God is our shield even when we don't see him working. Ahithophel and Absalom are determined to carry out their will to remove God's chosen king and yet they are merely tools in God's hand to accomplish his own will. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. It may seem like God's promises to his king are being undone, that they're failing, but that's not what's happening at all, is it? God's doing far more than can be seen. And he always is, even in our lives. You see, God is answering David's prayer. Church family, can I very simply encourage you in this to pray? 
See the example. David's turned his heart to the Lord in desperate prayer, and God answers prayer. We cry out to him in dependent prayer, and he works to accomplish his will. What an incredible resource and means of access to God we have in prayer. Are you faithfully taking that tool and using it according to God's will? As we conclude, the narrator so skillfully in this chapter shows us that God is sovereignly at work even when the circumstances seem overwhelming and desperate and David seems defeated. In Ziba, we see a man who seems to be trying to deceive and manipulate the king for his own ends, ends and it seems like it works. But even in this, God is providing for David through this man's scheming. In Shimei, we see a man who's filled with bitterness and hatred, claiming that David is being judged by God for something that he's not guilty of, and he gets away with it. And yet God reminds David in this moment of his grace toward those who are truly guilty before him. And we see in Ahithophel the betrayal of God's king and his counsel works but God is revealing the truth about this man as well and he's allowing his counsel to be undermined as soon as Absalom arrives in Jerusalem I want you to notice the last verse again of chapter 15 look back at 1537 notice the narrator is telling us something really specific that we need to pay attention to so Hushai David's friend came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Do you think the narrator recorded that just so we know this point of time? They just happened to show up at the same time. Not at all. Not at all. Even David's former friend Ahithophel, his betrayer, is in the hand of a sovereign God. Doesn't this remind us of Jesus' betrayer, Judas? Ahithophel is the Old Testament version of Judas, isn't he? Jesus was handed over to his enemies by that betrayer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, the night, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, or more literally the word there in the Greek is on the night he was being handed over. And there Paul's referring to Judas. But Paul uses that same Greek verb in Romans 8.32 to state that it wasn't truly Judas who was doing the handing over, but God accomplishing his own sovereign plan. Paul writes, God did not hold back his own son, but handed him over for us all. You see, the betrayer was doing his own will, seeking to accomplish his own purposes, yet God was accomplishing all his will for our eternal good. Do you see what your God is like? Do you see his power? Do you see what he's really up to in your life? Can you find hope in difficult circumstances when you know a God like this is behind the scenes, conspiring for your good and his glory if he can make sense of the suffering to David and even to a greater degree to the innocent suffering of his son, then he can certainly make sense and bring good out of your hardships as well. The text challenges us. It calls us. It urges us 
to endure the hardships of your life by resting in his sovereign grace. You have to know your God. You have to know his character. And nothing reveals him to us like the gospel. Now Hebrews 12 tells us that no discipline in the moment is pleasant, but that in time it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Over the last few chapters, we've seen a turn, a change in David. It's almost like we're recognizing the old David again. Are we beginning to see that fruit that Hebrews 12 tells us about? We don't often know why God is doing what he's doing. Providence is is always best read backwards. David here is suffering the consequences of his sin. But that's not always what's happening. Jesus, Joseph, Daniel, Paul, others in scripture suffered hardship because they were doing what was right. So don't conclude every time you're going through something difficult that God is punishing you for some sin maybe you don't even know about. Instead, entrust yourself to God who judges justly no matter what hardship has come in your way. We're to rest in him. We're to find the hardship to be another opportunity to run to him for grace to help in time of need. What pressures is he allowing in your life right now? How are you responding? What does he want to show you of himself through that hardship? What does he want to give to you, to teach you? How does he want to encourage you through that? A new hymn written just last year captures the spirit of David's response found in this chapter. The second stanza reads, When my song of hope is swallowed by the pain, as the weariness of grief floods in again, will you find me in the valley? Oh, hear my helpless cry. Hold me as a mother holds her child, and I'll take shelter. Take shelter in the loving arms of God. Psalm 3, verse 2, reads this way. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. Do you remember David's prayer? And he concludes verse 2. And he answered me from his holy hill. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven. We confess our lack of sight. Our lack of understanding our inabilities, our insufficiencies, our lack of resources, and most importantly, our lack of faith. This passage challenges us to trust in a God whom we often don't understand what he's doing. And yet it reveals to us the character of a God who always does good to those who do not deserve it. Father, we are at best unprofitable servants our desires to serve you and walk with you are present and yet our flesh is so strong our faith is so small sometimes we take our eyes off of you just as peter did as he's walking on the water to jesus he looks at the waves and the storm around him instead of keeping his eyes on christ 
Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.